This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today, political lessons from the past. Frederick Douglass, the black abolitionist, was the most famous black American of the 19th century. We'll speak about him with historian Eric Foner. He says Douglass's political ideas can help us in our struggles today. But first... From George H.W. Bush to Donald Trump, Trump Watch starts right now. We're still thinking about the first President Bush, Bush 41, whose funeral last week led lots of commentators to describe him as the good Republican president, the antithesis of Trump. We think it's more accurate to see him laying the groundwork for Trump, especially in his campaign for president in 1988. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, Bush 41 has gotten extremely favorable obituaries. Almost everybody is saying he was a good president. They seem to be contrasting him to another Republican president. Yes, I think if we make a list of people who would benefit by comparison with Donald Trump, we wouldn't have time to go through it on uh, on this podcast or on uh, the the 20,000 subsequent podcasts. So it to say it's a low bar to clear is an insult to low bars. Well, the the standard approach is to start with the good things that Bush did and then mention that not everything was good. Here we'd like to do it the other way around. What would you say is the worst thing that George Bush 41 did as president? Well, a number of things. Certainly uh, encouraging the wars in Central America, the uh, consequences of which uh, we experience this very day with uh, migrant caravans out of Central America. Certainly his mode of getting elected, which was a scabrous way of playing the race card and the Willie Horton ad. And Bush always seemed to sort of divorce himself from from, from that. Uh, you know, oh, that was mere politics, didn't count. The ends justify the means. But uh, the means became really the heart and soul of the Republican Party. The, the Willie Horton ads, uh, Michael Dukakis uh, let this guy out, the revolving door of uh, African-American, presumable crim- presumably criminals coming out of jail. This, this, this uh, was already becoming uh, a stock and trade of the uh, modern Republican Party. It is now virtually the uh, sum and substance of the modern Republican Party. But uh, that was how Bush uh, vilified Michael Dukakis, who, let us remember, actually led in the polls in 1988, going into Labor Day, and then and then came the vilification. Let me point to two other things that I think are the worst things he's done. First was nominating Clarence Thomas for the Supreme Court. Every time there's a Republican majority, we can thank George Bush for his contributions of the man who's probably the most right-wing of all Supreme Court justices today. And I would say the second worst thing that Bush did was his last act as president— which was pardoning many of the Iran-Contra crew in order to block investigation of his own role in breaking the law. That, that points the way for Donald Trump to follow the example of George H.W. Bush by pardoning the people who might testify against him. Could you review what this is about? 
Yes, in December of, of 92, after he had been defeated uh, the previous month by Bill Clinton for re-election, uh, just uh, uh, less than a month before he himself was to leave office, Bush gave uh, full pardons to six former Reagan administration officials, former Defense Secretary Cap Weinberger, President Assistant uh, Elliot Abrams, uh, National Security Advisor uh, Robert McFarlane, all of whom had been indicted and or convicted of criminal charges by the independent prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh, who had been called in to be the independent prosecutor of the Iran-Contra scandal. I think we just need to remind people what the Iran-Contra scandal was about. Reagan, as president, had armed the Contras... Uh, right-wing army that was trying to overthrow the left-wing government of Nicaragua. And then Congress passed a law banning all American aid to the Contras. The Reagan people nevertheless continued to provide arms to the Contras with money they got from selling arms to the Iranians, who, by the way, had been holding Americans hostage. The news of this secret deal got out, and that's why the special prosecutor was appointed to prosecute the people who had broken the law prohibiting aid to the Contras. Right, and of course Reagan himself said he didn't uh, know anything about it, and if, you know, that, that might have stretched plausibility, but it was certainly characterologically plausible for Reagan. Not so for Bush. Uh, there were notes that Cap Weinberger had taken in, uh, which mentioned that Bush was involved in this, that he'd been in meetings about this, uh, and that Lawrence Walsh learned that Bush's private diary uh, might have had some material on this as well. But by pardoning Weinberger, as well as the other people who had been convicted, Bush essentially got himself uh, an out. So what Bush did here, just to summarize, Bush pardoned Weinberger, preventing a trial in which evidence of his own involvement in the scheme to break the law would have come out. And after that, special, the special prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh, declared, quote, the Iran-Contra cover-up, which has continued for more than six years, has now been completed, close quote, as a result of Bush pardoning the people who could have testified against him revealing his own role in this. The parallels to Trump actually are a lot closer than a lot of people realize, I think. Sure. I mean, uh, there's no question that Manafort and maybe uh, Mr. Cohen and uh, various other folks who are sort of twisting in the wind at the moment, like uh, General Flynn, his brief, short-lived national security advisor, all these folks uh, and more probably have material on, uh, on Trump and the uh, connections of his son and uh, what, he, what he knew about Russian uh, subversion of the election. And, you know, the one way to uh, uh, get rid of this, uh, well, there are a couple ways. I mean, he could fire Mueller and see what the consequences of that could be, probably impeachment by the incoming Democratic House, or he could uh, pardon uh, Manafort and uh, uh, some other folks uh, and uh, see if he can skate by on that. So it, I think it really is a, a pretty plausible parallel to what uh, George H.W. did in the waning days of his presidency. I want to go back to the Gulf War, which is Bush's supporters and admirers consider one of his greatest accomplishments because he did not invade Iraq and try to overthrow Saddam. He said the United States should not try to, would have to rule Iraq and that would be a disaster. Of course, his son did exactly that and it was a disaster. But the conduct of the Gulf War 
began with 40 days of bombing, including a lot of bombing of of what seemed like civilian targets, power grids, uh, food supply sources, killed uh, more than 100,000 Iraqis, not all of whom were troops. 293 Americans died. The fighting on the ground lasted only 100 hours. And Bush announced afterwards that he had put an end to the Vietnam syndrome, close quote. What exactly did that mean? And was it a good thing to put an end to the Vietnam syndrome? Well, the the Vietnam syndrome was uh, a term devised by Republicans in the uh, decades between the end of the Vietnam War and uh, American involvement in 1975 and the and the Gulf War, where uh, whereby uh, the Democrats and when the, uh, Carter was president, the Democrats in the White House didn't think going to uh, war to preserve the Imperium was uh, such a hot idea. And uh, this was ta- cast by the Republicans as essentially a, uh, a lack of patriotism, a lack of sufficient nationalism, uh, a lack of good judgment on the part of uh, on the part of the Democrats. And so, damn it, we're gonna you know have a little war. And the the mini invasions of uh, the Reagan uh, presidency didn't really count, or the uh, one contracted out offshore to the Contras didn't quite do it. So here was a, a, a clean desert war uh, against an army, which, uh, you know, for which the uh, defeat could be quick and dirty. But as you say, it was preceded uh, by a bombing campaign, which, uh, uh, you know, somehow or other, the military, uh, you know, always says is precision and is clean and neat and yeah. involves fewer American casualties. Usually the bombs themselves are rather indifferent uh, once they're dropped as to where they explode, and they're never as clean and neat as uh, the Air Force in particular says they are. So, I mean, in part it was making a political point. That was also his his reelection, you know, uh, mantra was that he had, re- you know, ended the Vietnam syndrome, restored American power and honor in case people questioned it after the Vietnam War. What was bad for him was that the economy had entered into a pretty uh, severe, if short-lived, recession. And it was the economy stupid, the mantra of the Clinton campaign uh, that led to disaster. So let me end by by naming some of the things he's credited for doing that were good. He signed the Clean Air Act, and he signed the Americans with Disabilities Act. Now, this is at a time when the Democrats had complete control of the Senate and the House. The vote on the Americans with Disabilities Act in the Senate was 91 to 6. In the House, 377 to 28. So for Bush to sign the Americans with Disabilities Act, how courageous an act was that? Yeah, well, this is, this, you know, this was also the Republican Party before Gingrich. After uh, the Gingrich Republicans started to dominate Congress in 1995, you wouldn't have gotten Republicans voting for the All Hail Motherhood Act if a Democrat had introduced it. Uh, this was standard issue Republicanism, and it was sort of the last gasp of the kind of, okay, we'll go along with it, Republicanism that, that you certainly characterize, let's say, the Eisenhower presidency. And, of course, Bush was president during the fall of the Soviet Union, and he's given credit for working with Gorbachev during those years to end the Cold War, and that culminated in 1991 with signing the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty with Russia. How much credit should Bush get for the end of the Cold War? 
Well, the Soviet Union was on its last legs, I mean, by the time Bush took office. I mean, the, the time gap between uh, the day he was sworn in and the fall of the Berlin Wall is about eight or nine months, nine months, actually. So I, I don't think really uh, he gets much credit for that. I, I do think that some of the, the most mistaken policies of the U.S. government with the, the, the former Soviet Union have to do with the expansion eastward of, of NATO uh, while excluding Russia, and that's on Bill Clinton's watch, not on, uh, not on uh, George H.W. Bush's watch. I, I think that was perhaps the largest mistake we made uh, during that period, but that's more Clinton's than Bush's. One last thing that George Bush did that really was good, when he ran in 1980 against Reagan in the Republican uh, primaries, he called Reaganomics voodoo economics. That was a great thing. It was, and whoever was his speechwriter, or if he came up with him, came up with it himself, all power to that person. Explain yeah. what voodoo economics was. Reagan was uh, advocating uh, supply side economics that you could hugely cut taxes and you wouldn't run a deficit because the economy would become so massively productive that more taxes would flow in just as a result of that. That, of course, has been proven was proven false during the Reagan presidency and every subsequent Republican presidency, Bush's son's presidency, and uh, and the Trump presidency and the their tax cut of uh, of a year ago. You know, you lower taxes on the rich, and the deficit simply grows. And uh, th- there's no evidence that it really particularly boosts the economy. So voodoo, indeed. Even though Bush told the truth about Reaganomics. He nevertheless got the got the Republican vice presidential nomination. How did that happen? Well, Reagan represented at that point a faction of the party, not the entire party. And Bush was in some ways at that point in 1980 the most plausible representative of uh you know the last gasp of 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 more o-line republicanism plus bush agreed to go along with whatever reagan said that's the precondition for being vice president so it was both the last gasp and perhaps more accurately the surrender of o-line center-right republicanism when bush agreed to uh, accept reagan's offer harold meyerson read him at prospect.org harold thanks so much great to have you on the show Great to be here, John. Take care. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. The 19th century black abolitionist Frederick Douglass is everywhere these days. If you Google his name, you get 33 million results. There are Frederick Douglass elementary schools and high schools all over the place. There are statues of Frederick Douglass in many places, including the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. That statute was unveiled in 2013 after being approved by the Senate. There's a Frederick Douglass Boulevard in Manhattan. It's 8th Avenue north of 110th Street in Harlem. And, of course, at that Black History Month event last year at the White House, Donald Trump said, quote, Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is getting recognized more and more, I notice, close quote. For more on that 19th century black abolitionist, we turn to Eric Foner. 
Of course, he's the award-winning historian of the Reconstruction era. He's written many books, most recently, Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. He also wrote The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery. It won the Pulitzer Prize for History and the Bancroft Prize. He's on the nation's editorial board. He writes for the New York Times, the London Review, and the Nation. We reach him today in Manhattan. Eric Foner, welcome back. Nice to talk to you, John. Well, there was a time when Frederick Douglass was not praised by the President of the United States as, quote, somebody who's done an amazing job. Not so long ago, only a tiny number of white people even knew who he was. Uh, Yes, that is certainly true. Um, You know, I think back to my uh, high school history education in Long Beach, Long Island, and um, the textbook that we used didn't even mention Frederick Douglass. Of course, it didn't mention any black people, basically. But, um, you know, in the black community, Douglass was always known and admired and revered. Most of the people who wrote about him until mid-20th century were African-American writers of one kind or another. But, uh, you know, black history was ignored, and slavery was basically ignored, and the abolitionist movement was considered at that time a kind of group of fanatics who brought on a needless war. So Douglas was just sort of dismissed along with all the rest of them. The civil rights era, of course, led to a rediscovery of Douglas. But before then, starting in 1950, I, I will say, as a family thing, my uncle Philip Foner published four volumes of Douglas's uh, great writings and speeches, editorials. You know, he was a newspaper editor, Douglas, and uh, really began to put Douglas on the map uh, by doing that. So um, it's great that President Trump, who doesn't appear to know much about American history, has heard of Frederick Douglass. It's unclear whether he thinks he's still alive or not, but, um, you know, you take what you can get. Well, let's talk about Frederick Douglass's political ideas. They they changed over the years. If we if we start, I don't know, in the early 1850s, when the big question for the abolitionist movement was how to abolish slavery, uh, Douglas famously said, "quote I have no country." Close quote. What did he mean? Douglas started out after, of course, he was born a slave. He escaped around age 20. He got to the north. Uh, that was a very dangerous thing to do, and for about 10 years he was in danger of being captured and sent back until his freedom was purchased by a group of abolitionists for him. But um, he was a Garrisonian, a follower at that point of William Lloyd Garrison, the white abolitionist, who basically said, you know, the Constitution is pro-slavery. We should, in fact, break up the Union, he said, that the North is complicit with this evil institution of slavery. And um, Douglas followed him and uh, said, you know, I have no country means... I am not recognized as an American in the country of my birth. And, of course, not long after that, the Supreme Court in Dred Scott ruled that no black person, free or slave, could be a citizen. And that sort of underscored Douglass's point. But by the 1850s, as your question sort of indicates, he was changing. He developed a different view of the Constitution. He, he saw it uh, as uh, opening the door to certain kinds of anti-slavery activity, particularly what actually happened in the 1850s, barring slavery from spreading into the West. He thought that abolitionists should take part in the political process rather than just rejecting it the way uh, Garrison uh, wanted them to. Yeah, he changed his mind, but, you know, in the greatest crisis in American history, the coming of the Civil War, the Civil War, just about everybody changed their mind uh, in some way. Uh, in fact, if you didn't, there was probably something wrong with you. Lincoln did the same thing, of course, changing his mind about how to deal with slavery a number of times during his career. And 
then the war came, and then the war was over. And what what did Frederick Douglass think federal policy should be after the war towards the former slaves? I know he's been criticized for emphasizing what he called self-reliance rather than aggressive government action. Yes, Douglass believed in self-reliance. That is, you know, that's a 19th century idea, that people should rely on their own efforts to get ahead. After all, he was a perfect example of that. He's born a slave and nobody helped him, you know, I mean, a few people helped him escape, but it was through his own diligence and effort and self-education that he became a, you know, great spokesman. But at the same time, he said, yeah, there should be, we should rely on ourselves, but it has to be a level playing field. And therefore, the federal government has to intervene dramatically to create equality, to create, in a sense, equal laws, equal treatment, protect black people from violence. You know, the Ku Klux Klan was uh, active at this time. Once you get a level playing field like that, which of course has never existed for African Americans down to the present day, then you can talk about self-reliance. So yes, he think people should become dependent on government assistance. Uh, he thought that was bad for your character. But uh, certainly the way certain conservatives today, Clarence Thomas has done this, for example, pull out his statement, don't do anything for us, just leave us alone, to suggest that Douglas was really a kind of modern-day conservative is just a misreading of the history. What's relevant to the moment is he had a vision of what he called a composite nation. He welcomed immigration. He said the Chinese, who were despised at that time, we should welcome them. We should give them the right to vote. This is a country for everybody in the world who loves liberty. We shouldn't be barring foreigners who want to come to the United States. That was a pretty remarkable thing to be saying in 1869 when he gave his composite nation speech. And uh, today it resonates, obviously. You said Douglas was uh, a great orator of the 19th century. And of course, oratory was the major medium of communication along with newspapers in the 19th century. My favorite Frederick Douglass speech alongside the composite nation speech that you've already talked about is his speech about the 4th of July. We still run it in the Nation magazine, I think, every year. Remind us what he said about the 4th of July. Douglass says the United States, through slavery, is guilty of crimes that would disgrace a nation of savages. Mm. Douglass's 4th of July speech is a is a critique of hypocrisy. He says, you know, this is a day when white people get together and celebrate liberty, equality, democracy. And yet, at that point, there were over three million slaves in the United States. To to slaves, the 4th of July is a repudiation of the reality of American life. And yet, at the very end of the speech, he turns it around and says, you know, actually, the slaves are the truest Americans because it's only the slaves who believe in universal liberty, which is what the revolution was supposed to be based on. White people have abandoned that, but uh, it's the slaves who are carrying on the tradition of the American Revolution through their desire for freedom. So it's a, it's a brilliantly constructed and powerful speech, and yes, it, it ought to be read um, over and over again. You also say in your piece on Frederick Douglass for the Nation that he was the most photographed American of the 19th century. Why was that? Well, you know, I didn't realize that until, uh, you know, I I was writing about David Blight's new biography of Frederick Douglass, an excellent book, and he makes this point. Douglass wanted to be photographed. He wanted his image to be out there. He, He knew, he thought about the presentation of yourself. He thought about the caricatures of blacks, which were rampant in, um, 
newspaper cartoons and and other kinds of imagery blacks as savages blacks as stupid you know and incompetent and or animals he took command of his photographs i mean he was dignified he was he was someone you could admire in the photograph he insisted that that was how he wanted to be projected to sh- to counteract the demeaning images of blacks that were all over the place douglas was very very conscious of how the media spread certain ideas about blacks, and he wanted to uh, try to counteract that. You write in The Nation, we find ourselves today in a political moment that Douglas, in his later years, would have recognized. What do you have in mind? Well, in his, as he was pretty old, by the 1890s, Douglas was observing the retreat, the strong retreat from the ideals of the abolitionists, the ideals of Reconstruction, the Constitution had been amended, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to create equality before the law for blacks, the right to vote for black men, and yet that was all being taken away by the Supreme Court and by state governments in the South, in the Jim Crow system. And he was out fighting. He, he was still, he was pretty old, but he was out there speaking and denouncing the Supreme Court for their retrograde uh, decisions and uh, denouncing lynching, which was becoming very widespread in the 1890s. What I mean by saying we would recognize, Douglas would recognize our moment because we are in a moment, as is obvious, where rights that were taken for granted seem to be under attack again, including the right to vote, which yeah. he was, they were talking about in the 1890s. Progress is not unilinear. It's not always going forward. Sometimes things go backward. And Douglas was living in a time when things were going backward, and so are we, I'm sorry to say. And what was his message? It was to keep fighting. It was to agitate. It was to keep uh, true to your own values. Douglas, in, in his great uh, speech before the war, 1857, he said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. And uh, we can learn from that. You know, even at that dire time, Douglas didn't give up. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Eric Foner wrote about Frederick Douglass for the fall books issue of The Nation. Read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Eric. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.